Well, we've been, uh, we've been in the Psalms, as I mentioned a moment ago, for the better part of the last five months. And one of the things that we've been seeing through this series in the Psalms, one of the reasons that the Psalms are useful to us is that they, they help us to see what it looks like to, to engage God well. To, to taste and see him from experience, not just to understand true things about him that we might learn from reading and studying the Bible, but actually to know him like we know a good friend. The Psalms are here for that, to model for us what it looks like to, to know God from experience. That's the kind of knowledge of himself that God wants us to have. And the Psalms are among the most powerful tools he's given us for building that kind of knowledge of God. But the psalm I want us to spend a few minutes on this morning, this psalm shows us what will happen to us when we taste and see that the Lord is good. This psalm draws a cause and effect connection. When you actually experience for yourself the sweetness that is relationship with the God who made you and whose promises have been given to you, and whose mercies are new for you every morning. When you know from experience what it is to live in a relationship with this God, something always happens. When you know this from your own experience, you'll want others to experience it too. This is a psalm. Psalm 67 is a psalm that applies what we've been learning about how to engage with God and experience him to the calling God has put on our lives as Christians to be part of getting this goodness to the lives of other people all around the world. Now I want to begin by reading this short psalm, Psalm 67, and then I want to just bring a couple of truths out of this psalm and then we're going to move into a time of Q&A and interview with Victoria about what's coming next in her life. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Psalm 67. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is God's word. You can be seated. All I want to do this morning in just the next few minutes is help you to see every Christian's calling comes out at the beginning of this psalm and the one true motive for pursuing that calling that comes out in the middle of the psalm. Every Christian's calling and one true motive for seeking it. One of the most consistent themes in the Bible from the very beginning of God's people in Genesis when God calls Abraham and gives him a job to do all the way to the very end of the New Testament One of the most consistent themes you'll see is that God wants to use his people, the people who do know him, who do know his grace, who have experienced him for themselves. God wants his people to bless those who don't know him and his grace yet. Those who do know him are his instrument for getting his blessing to those who don't know him. Starts in Genesis, goes all the way through. This psalm is a great example of that theme. 
I want to show you where it shows up and then make sure that the point is clear. The first two verses are so, so important. And specifically the way the two verses flow together. I wonder if you notice this. The verse, verse one, the psalm begins as a prayer. It's a prayer for blessing. It sounds a whole lot like this blessing that priests would give over God's people. It's recorded in Numbers chapter six. Uh, May God bless us and keep us. Cause your face to shine upon us. Give you peace. But here it's a prayer. God, please, please bless us. Be gracious to us. Let us know your grace in our lives. Let your face shine on us. In other words, we we want your presence with us. So we want to know you with us, your presence in our lives, and we want to know your grace in our lives. That's the prayer of verse one. But look at verse two. Verse two gives us the reason for this blessing in the lives of God's people. These marks show up in the lives of God's people so that God's ways will be known on earth, so that his saving power will be known among all nations. So those who who do experience God's grace in their lives become kind of walking poster children for what anyone else, anywhere else can experience if they'll look to God too. God's grace active in the life of his people is, is partly, not only, but partly a means to an end of getting other people to experience the grace that God will offer to anyone who looks to him. You're blessed in order to spread blessing. Blessed so that God's saving power is known everywhere. What that means is that there can't be any pride for God's people in knowing God's blessing in their lives. That, doesn't, that just isn't how it works. There is, unfortunately, a kind of religious pride that's common in our hearts and throughout history, easy to see, easy to recognize. It actually looks a whole lot like racism. And the reason is that, it, that, that people sometimes can turn their religious practice into a kind of insider status that they have and others don't, or they need others not to have it so that they feel better about themselves for having it. You think about one of Jesus' memorable illustrations is of this Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray, and he looks over, and he sees this tax collector who's also there praying, and he, and he, and he says to him, thank you, God, that you've not made me like, like that guy. I mean, I, I fast a couple times a week. I always give alms to the poor. I obey the law to the fullest. Thank you for making me, me. Well, that's a guy whose identity depends on being different from this guy over here. So he doesn't want this guy over here to be like him. He, would feel, he wouldn't feel as good about himself if that happened. There is a kind of religious uh, exclusivism that just doesn't have any place in the way the Bible talks about God's people. Whatever grace God shows to us is always undeserved and is always about more about him than about us. And that means it's never ours alone. It's not our unique possession that we hold on to and protect. It's always looking out, always offered to other people, always looking to draw in anyone who will take it, always meant to be shared. Verse two tells us that this blessing we experience in our lives just can't stay put with us. As rewarding as it is to know God in your life, it's never just about the therapeutic value that comes from it, making you a more peaceful or happy person. As, as, peace, as much as peace and happiness is offered through relationship to God, that's, it's never really just about your life. It's never about feasting comfortably on his riches while other people outside you starve, blind to the needs around you, content to just enjoy his gifts for yourself. I remember as a kid, I was really into this show called DuckTales. Anybody else? DuckTales? Remember one of my favorite, uh, probably my favorite character out of DuckTales was this uh, uh, Scrooge McDuck. 
or McScrooge Duck, Duck, I don't remember his name exactly. Scrooge was in it. And, there, and like every episode, there'd be this, there'd be this scene where, where Uncle Scrooge McDuck is just swimming through his mountain of money. He was just this big vat, just full of gold coins, and he would dive off into it, and he would swim in it all around it and splash as if it were a pool of water. He, it was his riches, and the joy he got from them was just looking at them and just swimming in them and, and, and keeping them, holding on to them. The Bible just doesn't leave any room for us to treat the riches that God has brought into our life like a Scrooge McDuck. Or maybe another image will help you better. So up, up the street from our house off of 8th Avenue over here is this huge old water reservoir. It's amazing. It's up on top of this huge hill. And I don't even know what it's still there for, but at one time it was a big part of the city's water supply. It's a place to just hold on to water. And there's a way to, to, to treat God's blessings in our lives as a kind of water reservoir where we just, just hold on to it. We contain it. We're pleased with the surplus that we have, the security that it gives us. But the calling of God's word to God's people is always to be more like water pipes than like water reservoirs. We are conductants. We are conduits of blessing that God has brought into our lives. It's always about spreading, always. And Psalm 67 makes it especially clear. Here's the reality, folks. Here's what you need to know. Everybody who has ever believed in Jesus has come to believe in Jesus because somebody else told them the news and asked them to believe it. No one has ever or will ever believe in Jesus unless someone else tells them about him. So to believe on Jesus is never simply to enjoy a kind of a personal freedom from guilt and shame or a personal hope for a better future, or whatever other real benefits come to Jesus' followers. To believe on Jesus is automatically, inevitably, every single time to become responsible for carrying on his message, for bearing witness to what we've seen and experienced and known ourselves to be true. So everybody, everybody who's experienced God's grace, that's you this morning, if you're trusting in him, is immediately responsible for sharing it for getting access to that grace to people who don't have it. That's why international missions, especially missions to people who haven't yet been reached with the gospel, is the responsibility of every Christian everywhere. It's not just the job of a chosen few, of some sort of uber-spiritual elite who sell everything to go abroad. It's not just one of many options that Christians have for serving God in the world you can take or leave. Of course, moving abroad is not for everybody. But responsibility for international missions is for everybody. Roughly 6,700 people groups defined by language, by culture, by ethnicity... Roughly 40% of the world's people groups are not reached by the gospel yet. These are people who will be born, live full lives, and die without having a chance to hear about Jesus. They make up 3.1 billion people, over 40% of the world's population. We in our church have a responsibility to these people that we don't have to Birmingham or Chicago, or Dallas, or anywhere else that there are thriving local churches. See, in those cities, there are lots of people who aren't Christians, 
We pray for the conversion of people living in Birmingham or Chicago or Dallas or anywhere else. But there are local churches there to carry on the work where God has placed them. Like we carry it on here in our city. But where there aren't local churches, all of us are responsible. There's no other way to get churches there. So in all these places that don't have access, we, we are expected by God to be part of getting access to them. So how do we get it done? The motive matters so much, friends. The history of missions is not always a pretty picture. Sometimes the motive that has driven missions in history has been pride. A lot of early missions were were often interlaced with a kind of cultural superiority, a kind of imperialism, where what was shared was not just the truth about Jesus, but also the package deal of Western culture and all of its power. When pride is driving our missions, it won't ultimately work because it won't stand up to hard areas where gospel, gospel growth is slow and hard. There are places in the world where you can't expect to know how many, to see people coming to Christ on any sort of timetable or, or schedule that you can impose. And if pride in seeing your message win is what's driving you, you're not going to last over the long haul. Sometimes missions have been driven by fear. Fear, for example, of the Muslim world. Conversion is a sort of preemptive strike against terrorism. But this kind of, this kind of motive is short-sighted too because it can work just as much against going as for going. Maybe work easier against going because at some point you're gonna recognize if fear is driving you, that, that fear can restrain you as much as, 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 as move you towards places where the gospel isn't, had, isn't known. These areas aren't safe. Not for us, not for our kids, not for our grandkids. There's a lot of places that are safer to go. But if we only go to the places that are safe, then how are the nations gonna know about him? How are they gonna be able to praise him? There's only one motive that works for our responsibility to get the gospel to places that don't have it yet. One motive and one motive only, and it's what this psalm points us to. That motive, friends, is love. It's the only motive that works. You see where this comes out? comes out in verses three to five. We must be driven first by love for God. If love for God is not what pushes us to the nations, we won't get the job done. Let the peoples praise you, O God, the psalmist prays. Let all the peoples praise you. He wants God to be praised. Same thing comes out in verse five. Let the peoples praise you. All the peoples praise you. This psalmist is caught up with a desire, an ache almost, to see God praised, and it's driving him crazy that he's not. You ever have... um, you ever have a book or a band or a restaurant or something that you just think is awesome, just the best, and you can't stop telling people about it because you just don't think it gets the credit that it deserves? It can eat away at you. The more you're into it, the more it'll eat away at you if people aren't recognizing how wonderful this thing is. So you tell people all the time and you ask them to praise it with you. Your joy increases as they join you in praise because you think it deserves it. So unless we think of God as a cosmically underappreciated author whose praise we're desperate to hear in the mouths of people who haven't praised him yet, we won't do the work that we're, that's in front of us, not over the long haul. His work, his artistry, his genius, his all-satisfying deliciousness, it's all around people who aren't seeing it. It is not get it, getting the credit that it deserves. And if you love him, 
If the underappreciated author is a friend of yours, is in relationship with you, how much more does it eat at you when it's not getting the recognition that it deserves? We've got to be driven by love for God. And then we've got to be driven by love for others too. I mean, another reason you crave the recognition of some book or restaurant or music that you love that's underappreciated is that you love the person that you're putting, pushing it on. Like you think you have a plan for their life that's, that's being held up by the fact that they haven't tasted that thing yet. And when they do, they will see. They will not be the same. You push it on them because you care about them. You want them satisfied. You want them to have the happiness that you have. Your own joy, in other words, is tied up in their joy. And you can't fully enjoy it. Part of you can't fully enjoy it unless they enjoy it with you. That's not a perfect analogy. I know in heaven there won't be any regrets, no lack of joy in God's presence. But for now, friends, it is absolutely appropriate to long, like Paul did, for his people to know Jesus and to say something like, "I, I even wish myself to be condemned if they might know. I don't want to go in without them. Some of that comes out in verse four. Let the nations be glad, the psalmist says, and sing for joy. He loves them. He wants them to experience what he knows is good for them, what he knows they won't be glad apart from. He knows God won't get his due unless he makes them glad, and he knows they won't get what they need unless God makes them glad. Friends, we've got to be heartbroken over the fact that people are living and dying all over the world without even knowing what's available to them. That some people in more affluent areas are gorging themselves on the gifts without recognizing the giver. And they are waking up and going to bed unhappy. They will live and die alone apart from access to Jesus. Or on the opposite end of the, uh, of the scale, there are people who have lost everything. People like the Rohingya who have, who have had, who've been driven out of their homelands, been hounded and hated because of their ethnicity, because of their backgrounds, who have no place to go, who have nothing who are living at the mercy of aid organizations like the UN. And these people will live in in, in entire lives and die without knowing that despite the fact that they've lost everything, there is somebody who actually loves them. There is someone who is near to the brokenhearted. There is someone who loves to protect and defend the oppressed. There is someone who can make glad even those who have lost everything, who can give them something more precious than life itself. We have to be heartbroken by the fact that there are people dying who won't know that unless the news about Jesus gets to them. We have to want the nations to have the chance to be glad in God or we won't get this job done. So what can you do? You can pray. You can pray that you yourself will taste and see that the Lord is good so you'll be driven to let others see what you've seen. You can pray that our church culture will continue to develop what we're talking about and praying for what's going on around the world as a way of life. And you can take up personal responsibility starting this morning for supporting the workers who go out from our church as members of our church to actually move their lives to other places where the gospel's not known. You can pray for Mitchell and Victoria and Nathan and Haley and Janine. You can take their prayer cards from back here on this, on this resource table, stick them on your fridge and remember them every day. You can actually start taking up this responsibility by looking at the opportunities God's put in your life just because you're part of this church and the wheels are moving now by his grace.